This podcast is presented by Raytheon. From connected devices to infrastructure to critical mission systems, Raytheon works across networks, markets, and continents and defends every side of cyber to make the world a safer place. What is the real cost of cybercrime? Well, behind those bots, worms, and all that artificial intelligence, there are real people. A rogues gallery of pirates and plunderers dedicated to making money the good old-fashioned way, by stealing it. Our guest today has spent his life exploring the darker regions of the World Wide Web, and he says that cybercrime is, quote, relentless, undiminished, and just too easy and too rewarding to stop. He's James Lewis from the Center for Strategic Studies in Washington, D.C., where he is director and senior fellow of the Technology and Public Policy Program. I think that means he's looking at bad behavior on the Internet, but we'll ask him and find out. We'll also hear from Liza Mundy, author of Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. We caught up with her at the United Women in Cyber Symposium. She'll tell us about the women who helped pioneer today's cybersecurity industry and about the challenges still facing women. I'm Carl Cannon, and this is Real Clear Cyber Today. Jim, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Cybercrime seems like a combination of high technology and low human behavior. Is that how you think of it? It's not even high tech because it's so easy, you don't need to be a rocket scientist anymore. Sure, at the high end, there's people who are among the best programmers and hackers in the world, but you don't really need that much to beat the kind of weak defenses that many, many systems have. Well, so is this? It's is it really still just some kid in his pajamas can get into can oh, get into the defense department? No, no, no. The the kid days are long over. These are professionals, um, but they're they're smart. They do the minimum effort. They just do enough to get into your systems, and a lot of times, that's just sending you an email that has a link that says next year's bonuses. And if I send that to a hundred people, I can count on. 10 of them clicking on it, and I'm in. People still do this. Works like a charm. They never heard of phishing. Uh, they probably heard of it, but they're looking for carp. <laughs> uh, let's get a few numbers in place to give our listeners a sense of the scale that we're talking about. How do the losses from cybercrime compare with other types of illegal global activities? I'm thinking of the drug trade, arms dealing, human trafficking, maritime piracy, what have you. Uh, with most of those, it's it's roughly on a par. Uh, you hear sometimes that uh, it's the same as drug trafficking. Drug trafficking and corruption are still the most uh, expensive forms of crime. Um, maritime piracy seems to have been shrunk down to a fraction of what it was a few years ago. But cybercrime falls in the middle. It's It's not insignificant. It's a good living for the people who do it but it's not the worst crime, nor is it the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. Well, one difference though when people think of it is that you don't have to be out there uh, in the high seas, you don't have to have your ship boarded, uh, you don't have to be dealing drugs, you don't have to be going to Thailand for, you know, to get caught up in that. You can be in your own home, you can be in your own living room at your computer doing something completely innocent, and yet you're vulnerable to cybercrime. The, the real issue is that do you have enough to make it worth their while? 
And one of the changes we've seen in the last couple of years is ransomware. The individual payments tend to be relatively small, but you can hit 10,000, 50,000 people with just a couple hours work. So yeah, the average cost might only be a few hundred dollars, but multiply that by 10,000. Well, speaking of ransomware, I was gonna ask you about that, but since you brought this up, let me, there were there's school systems now that have been broken into. Uh, the Washington, D.C., um, the government, the city mm -hmm. government, the, the hospital, mm -hmm. what was it, the mental health system mm -hmm. recently. I mean, and they want, you know, $50,000. So by the time the, the school system or the local government calls its tech people and gets them in, I mean, they're already out to 50000 It's easier to pay, but it's they shouldn't be paying this ransom, should they? I'm going to default on that one because... You have to ask yourself, do I want to be offline for a week, like the city of Atlanta, or do I just want to pay the 50000 bucks? Frankly, that's one of the reasons this works so well, is most people hold their nose, pay up, and never tell. Really? Mm -hmm. um, and then presumably protect themselves, but won't double down on their, their security so it won't happen again and again. It's not really a security issue, sure. Better security makes ransomware harder to execute, but a lot of it is, have you backed up your data? And if you're a hospital or a city or a company, and the answer to that is no, you are doing something really wrong. Where are these people? Where do they live? Who, when you get hit with a ransomware, who, who, is, who is making this demand of you? Com who, who's Com holding this gun to your head, cyber Com gun? Comrade, that you ask me this, I deny that it, yet it is not Russia. No, the best are in Russia. Uh, Russia is a state sanctuary for cyber criminals. Um, Russian criminal groups are better than most countries when it comes to hacking. And so they're the cream of the crop. Uh, and there are other places, um, it's, there's a correlation between how bad is your law enforcement system and how likely are you to have cybercrime. And the, if you don't have cybercrime laws, if your police are relatively weak, you'll see in places like Brazil um, a haven for cybercrime. Uh, so it's, it's really two sets, the, the Russians and then the places without good cops. Th that reminds me, the famous, uh, infamous Nigerian internet scam, mm -hmm. were those really from Nigeria or were they also from Russia? No, they're from Nigeria. I mean, uh, Nigeria is probably not famous for its uh, law enforcement. Uh, there's a correlation. In your um, piece that you have on the CSIS website, that very well that's a very nice piece of work we're probably going to link to that on real clear mm -hmm. uh you talk about exploit kits at botnet rentals it sounds like a commercial bazaar where a criminal can go and just pick out the tools they need for a job is that is that how you think of it yeah that's why it doesn't have to, you don't have to be a mastermind anymore you have to have the right contacts you have to have a little money and you have to be willing to engage in crime but if you can get into what they call the dark web the web that isn't accessible when you search on Google. Um, you're going to find everything you need to be a, a pretty good cyber criminal. Digital currencies seem custom made for cyber criminals. Uh, you know, the digital money for mm -hmm. digital crime. Is Bitcoin what makes this all possible? Could governments just outlaw Bitcoin? It started with Bitcoin, and um, sort of ironically enough, Bitcoin uh, isn't secure enough for cyber criminals you can, with some work, find out who's acquiring the Bitcoins or who's spending them. So they've developed their own cryptocurrencies that go well beyond Bitcoin and are much harder to track. 
we will need to regulate the cryptocurrency market to control money laundering, drug activity, child pornography, arms trade. It's, it's used in a lot of bad things, but the Bitcoin should not be held. They might have started the rush, but um, the cyber criminals have moved well beyond Bitcoin. What's the other cyber currency and how, do, how does it work? How would, if, if you were the victim of ransomware, how would they tell you to pay? They might start by telling you to pay Bitcoin and then the uh, criminals would transfer that to another one of these currencies. Uh, the, the goal here is to avoid detection and to avoid being caught. So uh, usually it's not like there's some guy sitting at a computer at the other end communicating directly with you. There'll be multiple hops. Some of them will be automated. The goal is to make the trail difficult to follow. So these criminals are stealing money by shaking you down, but they're also stealing ideas and information. Um, and I suppose the real cost of stealing military and trade secrets is potentially greater threat to the United States than, you know, draining people's bank accounts of a few thousand dollars here and there. Well, and that's one of the reasons that the Trump administration has uh, finally taken on China, which is the has been until recently the leading source of intellectual property theft. And it's a fight that we've needed to have for a few years. The Chinese have always sought to acquire intellectual property, technology, business secrets. Um, for a long time, people thought, well, it's the cost of doing business in China. Uh, you know, I, I get more than I lose because I get market access, I get Chinese money. Um, the terms of trade changed probably three or four years ago. Uh, you do have an agreement, first in the world between the US and China, not to engage in commercial espionage. Um, that's been relatively effective, but it says commercial espionage, not all espionage. So if anything, the pace of spying has picked up. Um, if you're going after military technology or dual use technologies, you may not have agreed to stop doing that. So, yeah, it's, this is the place where the U.S. has been hurt the most. Do you think this is partly what is behind the, the threats um, on tariffs with China, is that we're seeking leverage in this other area? I asked a source at the White House. He, he frankly said, I don't know. But it made me wonder. Yes, I think it's linked in that the uh, Trump administration thinks that the terms of trade with, between the U.S. and China are unfair. Part of that is what they would call forced technology transfer. It also involves illicit technology transfer. From the day that Deng Xiaoping opened China to the West, Chinese policy has been to acquire Western technology, American technology, any way they could. Theft, espionage, forced transfers, purchases. So yeah, this is part of pushing back on China's trade practices that just are unacceptable. Um, since we're talking about bad international actors, how does how do the Russians justify what they're what, what they're doing? How do they see it? Why do they think it's okay to basically have this you know criminal class there operating with impunity? Uh, that's two different questions. Okay. So question one, um, criminal class. The the end of the Soviet Union saw uh, the emergence from the shadows of the. Russian organized crime, which had been there uh, in the 80s and had partnered with the KGB uh, in, in creating a black market within Russia. And 
Unfortunately, in the 90s, with the chaos uh, that it entailed in Russia, um, Russian criminals became interwoven into the fabric of the state. So you cannot separate crime and state anymore in Russia. I'm not the only one saying this. You could hear this from DOJ, FBI, our European partners. Crime and state are the same in Russia. So that's part of why they're... Uh, well, to give you an example, this is a classic cybersecurity story. Um, Russian hacker does really well, makes a lot of money, and then makes a mistake. He goes for a vacation in the Maldives, right? And uh, the U.S. learns that he's on vacation there and contacts the Maldivian coppers and says, you know, if we serve a warrant, will you pick this guy up? Uh, they pick him up. He's extradited the next day. Currently resides in Club Fed in the state of Washington. Um, his uncle at that time was the chairman of the Russian parliament's National Security Committee. It's almost unthinkable. And he complained. He complained, why are Americans arresting innocent young man? He was about as innocent as Al Capone. <laughs> but the linkages are very tight. Uh, and that, that's a big problem for us because there's no interest on the part of Russia to cooperate in reducing cybercrime. All right, now the other part, the official Russian, where they're interfering with elections, not just here but all over the West, doing these other things. What is the how, how is that justified? What is the dialectic there? How do the Russians say that this is okay? You're probably unaware of the secret U.S. plan to destroy Russia. In fact, everyone in the U.S. is unaware of the secret U.S. plan to destroy Russia. But the Russians, up to and including Vladimir Putin, believe there's a secret plan to destroy Russia. And so they see themselves as defending Russia. Now they've gone on the offensive. They see an opportunity to disrupt NATO, to hurt their major opponent. But this started as defense for them. Uh, my favorite is they broke into NATO's computer networks to look for the secret plan, <laughs> and they couldn't find it. So what does that prove? It proves that it's really well hidden, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and so they're, and to be fair, uh, we say, don't interfere in our elections, but oh, by the way, we're going to, um, send these NGOs to Moscow who will try and introduce democracy in Russia, who will support the opposition parties, who will um, undermine the Putin regime. And, you know, the U.S. can say, you know, these, these are not government entities. The Russians don't believe that because in Russia these are government entities. But they could make a case that, you know what, um, we interfered in Russia's domestic politics. Of course, we're on the side of the angel, so it's okay. But they started this as a defensive measure against our efforts to democratize the Putin regime. Putin has talked about that. He blamed Hillary Clinton. Uh, he said she interfered in the Ukrainian elections and things that happened there, they would say, well, these weren't coincidences. You know, we don't have demonstrations. This had to be the CIA. But I, I have to say, and I, I'm an American, so maybe I'm not perfectly objective, but to me, there is a difference between an NGO going over there, opening a shingle, saying we're promoting democracy, uh, and setting up, you know, a fake newspaper in Denver and sending out millions of fake stories on the internet under phony names. This is one of the bigger problems in cybersecurity. In the intelligence world, you would call it mirror imaging. So the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, they look at us, the North Koreans, 
and they think that the America works the way they do. So you don't have private entities in Russia or China. You don't have companies doing what they want without uh, in politics without government intervention. Um, they assumed that Medvedev has put it this way, the Russian prime minister, Putin has put it this way. Um, the internet is an American plot. It's a CIA plot to destabilize regimes that America doesn't like. And we can say that's crazy and we don't like it and it's not true, but that's what they believe. So they look at us and they see themselves and they ask, if I was doing this, what would I be doing? And they say, CIA plot. It's a paranoid regime, not only there, but in all the other places that we face as well. And that makes it hard to come to agreement. Um, so, so what can be done? Um, I mean, is it just going to be a cost of doing business, or can we ever set up a system that really protects us? It is currently the cost of doing business. It will be years before we can set up a system that would make us feel much more secure. There are things we can do in the interim that lower risk and lower cost. Uh, you see people doing it. There's been this incremental approach. One of the big problems is if the Russians have no incentive to cooperate with us, um, saying pretty please and sending them nasty notes isn't going to do it. We may have to think of uh, more forceful actions to change Russian, Chinese, Iranian attitudes about the cost of using cyber attacks against the U.S. Well, the famous example where we did that was Stuxnet. Mm -hmm. um, should we be doing other, should we be doing offensive things like that? Stuxnet may not be the best example because it was a uh, sabotage uh, effort uh, directed against the illegal Iranian nuclear program. Uh, a better example might be uh, Joint Task Force Ares, which was the uh, cyber command effort aimed at ISIS, and it hijacked their social media accounts, it uh, emptied their bank accounts, it fried their servers, it interfered with their ability to send out propaganda or communicate or to finance. That's probably a better model. And so the question is, this all happened within the last year, year and a half. If we could do that kind of thing to ISIS, should we be doing that kind of thing to our state opponents? I, I was going to ask you, it seems to me that it'd be tempting to do that, but it would also risk you'd have a new kind of arms race. I think if you talk to people in the intelligence community and in the military, they would tell you we're already in a new kind of conflict, that uh, the sides are operating against each other on a daily basis. Uh, much of this is in public, uh, and it's not... Part of our problem is, you know, that... In 1993, I think, somebody started talking about cyber Pearl Harbor. And so we've got... Those guys that ran. Was it them? Yeah. I don't know who it yeah. was, but it's, been, it's only been 25 years. Give it another couple minutes. I mean, we have conceptualized cyber war in the wrong way. It's a different kind of conflict. It's, as we saw with the election, it's cognitive effect. It's criminal activity. It's the theft of intellectual property. So we're building defenses around electrical plants. That's not the targets they're going to hit. We're in a different kind of war, and we have not adjusted to it. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Always cheery. 
Well, <laughs> you know, I, this is, Jim, I was telling you, I've been doing this, we've been doing this series, I've scared the crap out of myself. So <laughs> this is the way it is. Up next, Liza Mundy is a journalist and author. And in her latest book, she tells the story of the brave young American women who cracked the German and Japanese codes to help win World War II. I'm Carl Cannon, and this is Real Clear Cyber Today. This podcast is presented by Raytheon. In a world where every degree, every dollar, every defender is connected, seeing every angle is essential. So Raytheon works across networks, markets, and continents. We combine human ingenuity with artificial intelligence and defend every side of cyber to make the world a safer place. I'm Carl Cannon, and this is Real Clear Cyber Today. Liza Mundy is a journalist and author, and in her latest book, she tells the story of the brave young American women who cracked the German and Japanese codes to help win World War II. The book is called Code Girls, and we met up with Liza at the Uniting Women in Cyber Symposium, an event to bring together today's women in cyber, sponsored by Virginia's Center for Innovative Technology and Mach 37, an accelerator that helps launch new cyber companies. The book is about more than 11,000 women uh, who came to Washington in 1942, 1943 uh, to, to break codes, to break the codes of the Japanese Army, the Japanese Navy, the German Navy, other countries all over the world, uh, and really to pioneer the field of cyber intelligence. Unlike the British, who had a single code-breaking operation at Bletchley Park that gave all branches of the military all the intelligence they needed. We had two code-breaking operations, one run by the U.S. Army and one run by the Navy. They were very competitive with each other, which wasn't always a bad thing. They would race sometime, you know, sometimes to break into code systems, and that wasn't bad. But they competed for these women when suddenly we needed thousands of smart, educated women, uh, and they had different strategies. So the Navy went to the um, prestigious women's colleges of the Eastern Seaboard, the Seven Sisters, uh, because they, the Navy typically would recruit men from Harvard and Yale and MIT, and they considered these to be the female equivalents. Uh, and they would call in women individually who had been tapped by their math and astronomy professors as being good at languages or math, or simply being persistent young women who had grit and could withstand frustration and stick with work. Uh, and those women would be, um, would be given letters, secret letters, and invited to meetings where they would be asked uh, two questions. Do you like crossword puzzles, and are you engaged to be married? And the right answer to the first was yes, and the right answer to the second was no. Uh, and, uh, and a number of those women actually lied. A number of them were engaged, but whatever they were being invited to do sounded much more interesting than waiting around to see whether their brothers and boyfriends survived World War II. Uh, so they would lie and say that they weren't engaged. Uh, the Army had certain stereotypes about women uh, they sent handsome young officers to recruit uh, school teachers, largely from the South at first, although ultimately from the Midwest and other parts of the country. They thought that these young women would be susceptible to the charms of a handsome man and that they would sign up for secret war work in Washington uh, out of desire to make a marriage to a man like that. In fact, a lot of these young women were interested in getting out of 
engagements they had been pressured to pressured into by their soldier boyfriends and so they were eager to come to Washington to help win the war to make more money than they were making as school teachers and to um, like their brothers you know to contribute to um, to the war effort in any way that they could the reason that we don't know this story already is because during World War II the work was top secret and the women were told that if they told anybody what they did during the war, uh, they would be shot. It was wartime to divulge top secret information was an act of treason. The women took that very seriously. After the war was over, they were told, thank you very much. You saved thousands of lives. You shortened the war by a year. Uh, and now never tell anybody what you did because we don't want the world knowing that we can break their codes. So the women took that very seriously. They kept the secret for decades, and many of them took it to their graves. Uh, and as a result, I think historians and history have, have overlooked them. I interviewed many women for this book who were in their mid to late 90s. Uh, some of them were reluctant still to divulge the story. They had to be convinced that they wouldn't be put in prison uh, if they finally talked. And even once they felt comfortable talking, and, and in fact, you know, were, were ultimately eager to talk and to get some credit for their contribution to American history and to winning World War II. Uh, but even then, they sometimes felt uneasy because they were told during the war not only not to talk about their work but not even to utter certain words on the streets of Washington because the fear was that somebody connected with the Axis countries might hear them use a word like intelligence or security or cryptanalysis and just a, a word like that would be enough to give the enemy some insight into what was going on in these giant code-breaking compounds. It's always very daunting to talk to a crowd of people who actually know this material and, and you know, can catch me up uh, if I get something wrong. But, uh, but it's, all, it's, it's exciting and inspiring you know, to hear that women in NSA were waiting for the book to come out, that they, find it, that they themselves find it inspirational. And also, it's really interesting to learn how much of this is relevant to the present day. I mean, this was early encryption and early decryption. I was talking to someone at the conference who's... Uh, who uh, works with a company that does um, fraud recognition, learning sort of the way that people manipulate their computer mouse because everybody has their own signature and so you can tell if somebody is manipulating a mouse who shouldn't be. Well, that was going on during World War II. I mean, every Morse code operator had their own signature and, and intercept operators and code breakers learned how to recognize those signatures. So it's always useful to be reminded that this work is similar, even though it was so long ago, to the work that, that these women were doing. I want people you know, to understand that women, again, not only belong in fields like tech, computer science, and cybersecurity, but that women pioneered these fields during the war and did not get credit for it. I want people to understand that you know, we know about Rosie the Riveter. We know women who worked in factories, you know, building bombers. Uh, but we don't realize that women who had battled to get a college education back then, which was rare and hard for women, also lent their minds to the war effort. And that we had many women in industry, you know, in private, working for private companies, uh, but also for the military, running computers, designing computers, early computers, doing code breaking, uh, and that intelligent women uh, who applied their minds to the innovations that helped us win the war uh, were very important in that the allied countries, countries like the United States and the UK, were willing to bring women into the war effort at top levels in a way that the Japanese and Germans weren't. Uh, the Axis countries were much more traditional and conventional in their view of what women were good for. 
The Nazis thought that women were mostly good for breeding. Uh, the Japanese were very conventional as well. And, uh, and this was a, a major, but I think unsung reason why the Allies ultimately won. There were other reasons, of course, uh, but I think we maybe underestimate the importance that women played to making sure that the right side won that war. Thanks so much for joining us. There's more information about cybersecurity, including links to Jim Lewis's work at CSIS and more about women in cyber on our website at realcleardefense.com, where you'll get a prompt to go to our cybersecurity homepage. Today's podcast was produced by Andrew Walworth, and our interview with Liza Mundy was conducted by John Sorensen and recorded by Andrew Oak. We hope you'll join us next time. I'm Carl Cannon for Real Clear Politics. Thanks for listening.